Hello everyone, welcome to part uh, two of the Stompcast. I did actually just manage to catch a, a nettle sting, oh, no. but it's okay, I'm a, I'm a hardened stomper. <laughs> I'm out in my shorts and I'm enjoying nature. And so <laughs> part of nature is accepting that occasionally a thorn bush or a nettle might get you. It'll be absolutely fine. What's the cure for nettles again? It's getting, what are those? It's um, a dock leaf. Dock I'll leaves. keep an eye out. Actually. And do you know what? They work fantastically well, but no, I'm honestly, I'm, okay. here we go. Here's a, there's a dock oh, no, leaf. Uh, is that? Yes. Oh, it's a bit. Old. It's an old, uh, like an old dock. It's kind of like me. It's fine. Slightly <laughs> jaded. It's a jaded dock leaf. What are you it's laughing about? Yellow. Charlie? <laughs> Charlie's just. Oh, but I, Adam, we forgot it's, to say it's, uh, it's actually Charlie's birthday. That's what we thought. We'd say <laughs> happy birthday, Charlie, as well. You come back from Marbella. We said happy birthday already, so you had your moment. Uh, just not on it. I'm sorry, Charlie. We do love you. It's fine. Um, uh, so I'll avoid any more stings. But everyone, welcome back to part two of the stomp class. Myra Rose joined me. I'm really, really enjoying this because we're learning. Um, about bird watching, and it's something that I think a lot of people uh, will enjoy listening and hearing about. I'm sure you've enjoyed part one, and again, a reminder if you haven't, uh, go and check out uh, and get a copy of uh, Bird Girl. You know, it's a great way to learn uh, more about this if you're interested. I and mean, we have found a big dock leaf. Yeah, I feel really bad. Just pick that dock leaf. Just yeah, rub that on it. Just rub it on a bit, and we're fine. There we go. <laughs> I can do. I got the dock leaf. There you go. Yeah, There's a good. A we usually have a health fact of the week. There's you've had a bonus health fact of the week. <laughs> that dock leaves are fantastic for. Uh, nettle stings and so on. So if if people obviously we we said about the book, which um, you know is a fantastic place to start. If people want to you know think about right, okay, I'm from this part of the UK, or maybe you know we're recording this basically near Bristol. Mm -hmm. If they're thinking you know, I, well, I'm living in London or Manchester or I'm in Birmingham or you know I'm in the west coast of Wales. How do I start with this in terms of are there any good communities to join, mm. pages to follow? Yours, I think, is an obvious page that people <laughs> should follow for obvious reasons. The clues in the title. Um, but you know, is there any tips and advice of, of, of how you can build a community around it and you know where to really start? Yeah, I think um, if, if people are kind of interested in just getting into birding, I'd always recommend literally going to your local park, your local green space, because like I said earlier, there is more there than expected and it's very accessible. But I think if people are seeking out other people to spend time doing this with, then a really e easy way to do it is to literally Google your local nature reserve um, and show up because very often they have like talk boards on the front saying the good birds that people have seen that day. If you go That's into so the, cool. Like they're, they're trying cool. to get more people into it. If you go to the bird hides, there'll be loads of other people who are probably up for a bit of a chat, you know? Like you can stop people and say, what's going on today? Do you have anything you'd recommend? You know, whatever. Um, and like I said, people are really friendly. Um, I think that's just a really easy way to do it. And um, generally in your experience, are people happy to, I mean, you mentioned that, are people happy to teach? Because I mean, I, I, I often found, certainly growing up, my, one of my hesitancies of trying a new thing is often I have a fear of going there and then people being like, oh, you're an idiot, you don't know about this, or, or be like, you're rubbish at this, you've never done this before. It, it, would you say it's generally quite accepting? Uh, community, can you ask people questions? They're like, you know, I've never, perhaps I've never done this before. You're here, and you know, are you are you watching out for birds? Is you know, what yeah, can you see? Yeah, totally. And I I think the what can you see question always always goes down well because people love talking about the birds that they've seen today. Mm. And then yeah, I think most of the time people are very open to questions. And on top of that. Um, like I mentioned, going to the um, reserves like RSPB and Wildlife Trust and things like that in particular, they always have someone working there that you can talk to and you can sort of have extensive conversations about all that kind of stuff mm. because it's their job mm. as well. Um, it's kind of hard to realise if you've never been into these spaces, but it is all very set up 
to be as welcoming and accessible as possible. I'd like to talk to you about what you, how basically something that's been a clear passion throughout your life has become such a centre point of what you do. I hope mm. I'm okay saying that. You know, you, you're studying at Cambridge University, you're working with organisations like National Geographic, I'm right in yeah. saying. Um, you've published several books, you're heavily involved or actively involved in activism and, and, and climate um, activism. How, how, how did all of that happen? You know, you, it, it's You've gone so far with it and done so much, and you're 21, which kind of is, is kind of crazy. Um, how did that journey happen? Like, talk to me about, yeah, where, um, how did you go from sitting in a lovely bird hut like that to doing all the things that you do now? Um, God, I find this so weird to answer, and I kind of look back over everything, and I'm like, that's insane. Um, but a lot of it felt very normal at the time. Um, so it kind of all started when I went online when I was about 11. And it was literally just because I'd just started secondary school. I'd started realizing that bird watching is quite, was seen as quite like a weird, nerdy hobby. And it was like, right, I'm gonna find, or I knew people that were online and I was like, I want to join this community. And so I started a blog and I needed to call it something. So I called it Bird Girl, um, not realizing that that would stick because um, now more people know me by bird girl than my real name um, and it just kind of at first on this blog I was just connecting with people I was writing about the birds that I'd seen at the weekend you know stuff like that but I think very quickly um, I realized what I found more interesting to write about was the issues that I was very concerned about going on in the world and as a kid who loved nature and the outdoors I was really really worried about things like climate change and deforestation and you know all, all of these sorts of things um, and so I kind of slipped into campaigning because I was lucky enough to have kind of gained a massive audience online um, and I think I don't know I, I just ended up involved in various projects over the years such as um, a big one for me was saving the spoonboard sandpiper which was a really um, rare species of wader that migrates down to Bangladesh every year and I ended up going out to Bangladesh to loot where my family is from and doing lots of campaigning there, for example. And it all just kind of, I don't know. There are so many things that I look back and I'm like, that's crazy that like a 12 year old was doing that. But at the time- Is it that felt, how old you were at that time? I was 11 when wow. I started that blog and I was 12, um, yeah, about 12 when I started doing campaigning and it felt so natural So reason, re really, uh, uh, you're a almost a veteran in the space. There's <laughs> a decade of, of of oh this God, work. when you say a decade, that sounds a very long time actually, yeah. <laughs> and um, I think you've got plenty of decades to keep doing it, it's, it's an exciting thing. What, is, what has been the most exciting project that you've worked on? I mean, to be associated with organisations like National Geographic mm. and so on, it, it's, it's quite incredible to be publishing uh, books as well. Like, what, what, is, what gives you the biggest buzz or what area excites you the most? Um, I, I think there's kind of two different areas that I've I'm these days I'm dedicating a lot of my energy to um, one being climate change campaigning um, I think still one of the most exciting moments I've had in terms of all of that was working with Greenpeace when I was about mm -hmm. 17 I did a youth strike for climate out on the ice in the Arctic because wow. I was on a ship up there at the time and that image ended up going like viral which was crazy wow. um, that was just like a really incredible moment for various reasons. What was the key message that you wanted to get across from that campaign? Um, well, I, I was living on a ship for about a month up there with Greenpeace and the reason we'd gone was um, because 
they were measuring basically the extent to which the Arctic ice had melted and it was the um, second smallest it ever had been. Mm. It, there was a very distinct pattern of the Arctic getting smaller every year. And I was really upset and I was really angry. And um, it was very, very last minute. They'd only invited me out there maybe a week or two before mm. we went. And kind of the reason I'd said yes so quickly was partially because I kind of felt like it was going to be gone by the time I was like in my 30s and able to, you know, go as an adult. It's a scary and thought, isn't it? It was. I was really upset. And so I did this youth stroke. But I've done uh, various bits of climate work over the years, particularly in terms of climate justice. Um, but the other big project that he's been going for like eight years now, which is insane, um, is my charity, Back to Nature. Yeah, so talk, talk to us about that. And I, I, I must say, when I looked up, I was looking all the work that you're doing. We'll come to a bit of a dead end. There's no yeah. such thing as a dead end. It's all a bit all of right. a word exploration. This is a swivel moment. Yeah, that was very um, You know, I think it really, really spiked my interest. Um, and I'd, yeah, I'd love you to, in your, in your own words, really share, you know, why you're passionate about this topic and what it is you're trying to achieve. Mm. Yeah, um, so Black to Nature is my charity I set up when I was... Uh, 13 that is basically it's casual 13. <laughs> um, it's all about um, working with kids from uh, ethnic minority backgrounds especially from like very deprived areas and communities and basically taking them out into nature and giving them that chance to spend time in the countryside and surrounded by nature um, which like you mentioned actually with those fishing trips earlier a lot of the kids we're working with have literally never been to the countryside before have never had experiences like this um, and I set it up for a few reasons, I suppose, in that, firstly, as someone who is not white and spent a lot of time in my childhood in the countryside as I got older, I was starting to really recognise that I never saw anyone like me or my family out in nature, and I think almost subliminally because of my own personal experiences with nature and the outdoors, I almost felt like you know, it's a necessity, it's a right mm. for people to have access to these spaces. And it's also to sort of try and engage, like help people to fall in love with nature and the outdoors because it's just that people who have, have no reason to care about the various crises threatening nature of the environment if they've never loved nature and they've never experienced the environment. And so it kind of, when I started it, it was it's almost supposed to be a one-off event, a camp over a weekend to kind of bring these kids into nature and... Where was the camp? Where were you? It was um, near Glastonbury. Oh, beautiful, um, yeah, it, okay, it yeah. It was beautiful, a really lovely beautiful. bit of the world, very green, lots and lots of birds. Um, and because I was already online at this time with quite a big following, so I was kind of talking about it as I did it. And I had so many people just coming to me and saying like, oh, you know, there are just certain types of people who can't engage with nature. And I was like, that's nonsense and it doesn't make sense because I love nature and it kind of was this massive success um, and it kind of I think changed a lot of attitudes around why there are issues in terms of diversity in the outdoors and because I think historically the attitude had sort of been like well that you know black and Asian people aren't banned from coming into the countryside mm. so we're not doing anything wrong mm. Versus it's sort of when you look into it, there are so many um, kind of systemic issues to do barriers, with kind of race and class and barriers. And it was kind of in both directions in that like 
you know, there are physical barriers to do with people not having like the right clothes or footwear or not having a car so they can't drive out to the countryside. And then there are kind of these physical, cultural barriers as well. We ran a conference talking to people about why this was an issue. And, you know, we had people with very kind of strong feelings towards nature. We had people worrying that they would literally be hate-crimed if they went into the countryside. Mm. We had mothers who refused to let their teenagers hang out in parks because mm. they were scared they were going to be profiled by the police, you know, as being involved in gang activity. You know, there were these big wow. issues going on. Things you wouldn't necessarily even realise exactly, if you're not aware yeah. of it, isn't it? Because um, it's just so outside our scope of reality, I suppose. And so I guess, like, Black to Nature became my way of giving these kids the, the opportunity to go into the countryside and experience it. And so, yeah, we spend a lot of time talking to them about environmental issues and about, you know, mental health and how that they can use nature as a resource to deal with that. And also just about them and their lives in a way that they quite often haven't had the opportunity before, kind of from, you know, their experiences at home to dealing with racism in school to kind of sometimes being the first people to ever tell them that they are capable of doing things and doing more. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I, I love it and I love working with kids and teenagers and it's just... And what did, what, you know, for example, at that, where, you know, you're in Somerset there in Glastonbury, what was the, what was the reaction from, you know, people that came? You know, what, what did they say to you, all the things that you heard in terms of, you know, being in the nature and was mm. it what they expected? Was it something new for them? Yeah, I remember that very first camp. Um, I was terrified and actually, especially because I was 13 and some of the boys that came were older than me as well, which was a really weird experience. And I remember overhearing a conversation where it was two of them talking. It was like, did your mum make you come? And it was like, yeah, I did yours. And it was like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is a disaster. Um, and I just felt like it was all going to go wrong. And so like, especially um, when we first started doing stuff, a lot of the kids very much came in with the attitude of like, not interested, don't want to be here. I'm a city kid. I have no interest in being out in this space, you know, all that kind of stuff. And something that is really magical is kind of seeing these kids and te or teenagers kind of transform over a weekend and kind of totally fall in love with nature because all of them do as well. I think that's the really special thing. It raises a really important point. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking of this in a public, with a public health hat on. I'm doing mm. a master's in public mental health. We're both studying at this time. I'm not older than you, but I'm, I'm studying as well. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm thinking about this in the sense of like equality versus equity mm. of access. Because I think a lot of the time, for example, we're here now in this, uh, I don't know if you would call it park or whatever. Um, you could say, right, you know, equality of access is, you know, say for example, for those with physical disabilities, mm. you know, it's flat, there's, there's, you know, there's ramped footbridge, there's, there's the car park is level, so on. There's some, you know, some mm. things just to pull off a few things. And you can say, oh, well, there's, there's a quality there. You know, most people can come and access this in terms of getting around and, and so on. But that equity of access is going, is looking at actually who are the people in society that will struggle most to access mm. this and how do we go to them to actually give them the ability to come and utilise it. So that might be, you know, considering you know, uh, uh, taxi services that go um, to fetch those who are disabled but with purpose-built vehicles, mm. bringing them here, for example, or it might be in the case that you're talking about, at projects and, and ways of actually going to areas, for example, cities mm. and engaging communities um, uh, and helping them actually 
have access to the nature rather than just going, oh, it's forever. It's a free park that everyone can go to and mm. go, well, it's there. Yeah. That's equality, right? You can go, you can go yeah. and everyone can go there. But then are you actually helping and are you actually targeting in a positive sense, targeting people and going, right, well, how do we engage in these communities? Yeah. Think about the barriers that are there. Think about the cultural barriers, but also think about like, well, how are you going to go from inner city, Birmingham, for example, to come out to a large lake? Yeah. You know, those are, those are I think, sometimes it, it's interesting when you look at, like, interventions and, and, and health policies that you kind of got to look at things in a different way. Do, do you think, you know, for what the work that you're doing, do you think people's attitudes are changing around that, that people, you know, when you're talking about, say, nature reserves or, you know, big organisations, you know, mm. um, national parks, is there a shift in thinking how do we actively help people come and enjoy these spaces, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think looking back um, to, you know, 2014 or whenever it was, um, it was it was so different in terms of everything in that, like I said, there was very much this kind of equality rather than equity attitude towards it in which it was very much like we're not doing anything wrong, so we don't need to deal with this which and you know this is from a lot of these big nature organizations and we spent or I, I guess I spent a lot of time as black to nature um kind of in meetings and kind of I, I actually spent about a year or two kind of chasing the various CEOs of these organizations and basically annoying them until they met with me Good um and you know I think there there has been such a big shift in that now when I go into meetings, it's like, what can we do? How are we going to deal with this? What's the attitude? It's something that they're bringing into everything. And I think, like, it is a really important shift and it was, it was a big change that needed to happen. But obviously there is still a long way to go. But I think there even being an attitude now where it's like, yeah, we want to bring everyone into the fold um, is so important considering that, you know, 10 years ago, a lot of nature reserves in the countryside was not a welcoming space, basically. Um, and it's not just in terms of race, there are also a lot of issues to do with class and even historically to do with gender. Like I said, when I was growing up, there weren't that many women who were bird watching mm. um, versus now that is totally not the case. And a lot of these women have sort of built spaces and built communities mm. for themselves. And so it's kind of, yeah, just, just things slowly, slowly changing bit by bit. And uh, of course, you know, you, you said that um, as, a, as a woman in this space, uh, as an activist, you know, you, you, you notice that the kind of typical people that perhaps in that space, but actually there's quite a few, you know, women, high profile women in climate activism at the moment. Yeah. I noticed looking on your page that a certain Greta follows you yeah. on, uh, on Instagram. Um, Greta Thunberg obviously probably will not being up there with, you know, the world one of the most famous uh, uh, activist, climate activist. You know, how did that come about? I understand that you've actually shared a stage together. Is that correct? I have. Um, yeah, I, I do my stalking. You see, all this, <laughs> I was going to say you've done your stalk. research. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it's, well it's, it, it, it is. As I said, I really, really spiked so much interest in, in you know the things that you're 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 doing, and I was like, wow, this person is relentless. Is that <laughs> the word that came to um, mind? So I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, how did that come about? And uh, yeah, what what does it feel like to be part of such a movement on that kind of well I'd almost call it the international stage really yeah um I've done a few different events with Greta now which I remember the first time it happened was when I was about 17 and it was crazy 
because she gave us about a week's notice that she was coming to Bristol. And so I had a few days and I was like, this, I have to throw together like the most perfect speech ever because like Greta's going to hear it. Mm. Um, but like since then, I've done a few panels with her, including with a group of amazing young women, young climate activists who have kind of been dubbed the Climate Justice League. Mm. I think being involved in this international community because it is very international i think climate change stuff has to be is incredible in that like i think kind of sometimes doing environmental stuff is a bit thankless in that it especially kind of with the news cycle it can constantly feel like something miserable and terrible is happening um even if that's not always the case but i think for me knowing and having met like hundreds and hundreds of incredible passionate inspiring determined people who just like care so deeply and are doing everything they can to make this world a better place like I, I find that inspiring and I think that that is kind of what gives me hope and keeps me going and that it's almost like how can things not change for the mm. better when all of these amazing people are trying and working every day so hard to make it so. So you feel optimistic? I do I think I genuinely think that like being hopeful in the face of the environmental crisis is so important and so radical in that like even a couple of years ago a study came out that said over 50% of my generation just thinks we're doomed and that's that and um, you know yeah. and it's not which has huge huge mental health implications it does, there's a lot of yeah. so for my you know there was a, a recent quite large study looked at um, the reasons why young people are so anxious and fearful uh, and one of the very very highest alongside um, uh, worries about financial insecurity and what the world will look like in that sense mm. right up there is climate anxiety yeah, it's right at the top terrifying. of the biggest fears because yeah. um, you know as a, I did a um, I visit many schools and I mm. did a talk with a, a school and, and, and this he couldn't have been older than 12 or 13 he said well you know why wouldn't we be afraid because we genuinely like when my parents were growing up they grew up and they're like the world's kind of there's problems but like the world is going to exist for us so mm. i grew up and i don't know if i'm going to have a world at the end of my life and i'm like oh like in the middle of my life yeah <laughs> that is like when you hear a young person say that i should put my hair hairs my arms up it, it really um it's it, you think oh my this the 12 13 year old is sat here this young child if i may say yeah. is sat here basically worrying about the world ending it's not no, absolutely it's not like, good for anyone is it i remember for <laughs> you know? me like a really shocking moment was talking to a family friend who had their child was probably like seven or eight at this mm. point and they said that they used to just break down in these crying sobbing fits because they were so upset and so concerned about the state of the world like i think people really underestimate the sort of deep psychological damage almost mm. that people are experiencing because of the climate crisis. And so, but I think at the same time, just sort of giving up and being like, well, the world is doomed, there's nothing we can do about mm. it, isn't the right approach because I, I guess the caveat and sort of having hope and feeling optimistic is you also need to go out and do things. Mm. You can't be waiting for other people to save the world, but there is so much that can be done. Um, and there are so many of us that are working towards it. Just to end this part then, so what are the, what are the, what are your main reasons? When you say you're optimistic, what are the main reasons? Partly is having the people that care and it's amazing mm. that, you know, people, you know, like yourself are out there, you know, really fighting for this. But what, you know, what, what are your reasons why you're optimistic? Because I, I agree with you, I think a lot of the time in the news, perhaps you um, see stuff that is, is not as, 
uh, is encouraging and, and it can actually sometimes our natural reaction is to bury our heads in the sand so yeah. if some if people have had their heads in the sand you know when they lift themselves out of it and have a listen what what are the positive things that we can focus on in terms of action and and, and hopefully you know having you know maintaining this beautiful world that we see around us right now like I think one of the biggest kind of unlearning things for me in terms of the environmental crisis has been kind of this idea of individualism where it's kind of I think the narrative that we kind of have is we all need to change our lives singularly in order to solve this issue like the planet is relying on every single one of us to radically change our behaviors and in the long term yes but I think realizing that in the short term what we actually need is political change was kind of it kind of slid everything into perspective for me and I don't know if that's makes it less scary or scarier but it's kind of like we're not really relying on people to you know cy cycle to work once a week instead of drive you know it, at the moment that doesn't make or break it what we actually need to do is signal to our governments and to our MPs and our leaders that this is the issue that we really care about and this is the one we need to see change on. Um, and really important, so um, that actually this is a good example um, uh, where it's really important for young people to use your voice because of course, Abby, mm. we were quite, like I do a lot of course with the Department of Health and Education and at the moment they're doing um, the big ask. So mm. it's a survey for young people to basically say what they care about from climate yeah. change to mental health and stuff. So if you're listening to this, I literally just popped into my head funny enough as no, we're absolutely. talking. Please, yeah. we'll leave a link in that to the big ask in the notes. Please go. Big ambition. There you go. I've got it wrong. It's all my head. <laughs> I did the, 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 the Basque ask before. Is, yeah, the first one was big ask. This big ambition. There, I was close enough. Um, uh, so I have got that wrong. Abby has corrected me. So we did the big ask first time. This is the big ambition. You can see it's very close. Um, please do click the link in the show notes and fill it out because mm. it's so important that you, if you have a voice, you must use it. Right? You must use your yeah, voice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, for me as a kid as a teenager whatever kind of realizing that I did have a voice and it mattered and that I could create change was such a um, almost life-changing moment for me and I think especially kids and teenagers constantly told that their opinion doesn't matter their voice doesn't matter when actually it, it is incredibly important and in terms of like the political change politicians are always looking at kind of teenagers to figure out what the yeah. next issue they should care about is yeah. um, and so like I don't know, striking or showing up to demonstrations, or for me, I write to my MP very regularly, mm. who is, yeah, my local MP is Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I write to him about yeah. the things that he's yeah. voting about in Parliament, because I think reminding people that we are watching and we do care is, is so important in terms of this. And so and, I think... And, yeah, and please make sure, as you say, to write in MPs, fill out that yes. big ambition, and also please vote. We've got a general election that's yes. not that far away. Please vote, because ultimately, if people don't vote at all, what happens is then, even more so than already is already happening, the focus of the politicians, well, all right, who's voting, what do they care about? Mm. And if you don't vote, you're not basically at the table. Uh, is effectively so, so please Absolutely. do vote I know it can be really hard and daunting you think oh well my one vote you know versus everyone's but if everyone says that then yeah it, know, does, it makes a big difference everyone has to, yeah. everyone has to do that um, and yeah I think just in general people realizing that their voice does matter like we said is kind of what we need at the moment empowering, and empowering as well I think in particular there are so many people I know who have felt like we said really miserable about the future and what that might look like and then actually getting involved and going out and doing things getting involved in activism 
creating a community of other people who also care about these issues that helps with that especially in terms of like you said the mental health aspects of this all um, and so Hugely. i think yeah getting stuck in well thank you so much for your work now we're going to move on to part three uh, in a moment so thank you to everyone for joining in part two um, as i say please click that link you know use your voice there and we'll see you in part three take care and goodbye <laughs>